ever played one of those like guess the picture games. So you start maybe really, really zoomed in on a picture and then you have to take some time and try to, to try to guess what the picture is. Anyone ever played that? If not, you're in luck. So we're gonna get to do that together today, this morning. And once you think you know what the picture is, just raise your hand and there's gonna be a point, a way to keep score on, on the screen. So if you change your answer after you raise your hand, you get zero points. All right, so here we go. Are we ready? Picture one. All right, so uh, I got 15 points that time. I don't know about anyone else. Like, I've already seen the video a few times. But you know, uh, anybody do really well? No, really? Did anybody get 10 points or more? All right, so it's a little bit difficult, right? Like when we say so zoomed in on something, it's hard to see the full picture, right? Like it's hard to see what is actually going on. We can see this small little detail. We might think we're looking at a button when in reality we're looking at an Apple Watch. And so this is what we're doing in this series is we are helping, we are zooming out on these pictures of, of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to kind of see a bit more, a bit fuller of a picture of what Jesus actually did, what he actually accomplished. Because what ends up happening is if we stay so zoomed in, we can miss the picture. We can miss what we actually are meant to see. And as we walk through the scriptures... The Bible writers use a ton of different metaphors to describe what Jesus is doing on the cross, of what he accomplished for us on the cross. And we can, sometimes it can be our tendency. There's probably one or two. It's like, okay, this is the one I'm most comfortable with, so we stay focused on this, or, or we neglect all the rest, and we stay zoomed in and laser-focused where we end up missing what Jesus actually did. We miss, miss, we miss this, this beautiful, big picture of what Jesus actually accomplished for us. And so this is what we're doing in this series. We're looking at these different metaphors to help us see what Jesus did for us. And I want to make sure that we understand the metaphor is not the thing. We're not just like, okay, we're not worshiping the metaphor, okay? We're not like, oh, wow, that's like, it's to help us understand the thing. It's to help us understand what Jesus, what Jesus did. So don't, don't get so con con connected to one of these metaphors and be like, okay, this is the one, this is the only one, like, the metaphors are meant to point us to Jesus and help us to see what he accomplished for us. And the metaphor that we are discussing this morning is the blood sacrifice. I know everybody's pretty excited to talk about that this morning, um, but here's the thing. This may be the one that most of us are most familiar with. Every single week when we take communion, what are we remembering? The blood sacrifice. Jesus says this in Mark 14, 24. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for me. In that passage, Jesus is setting up communion. And so what we begin to see is like, this is, a, this is one that we know. This is one that we've, we've heard before. And as we read through the pages of Scripture, blood and the metaphor of blood actually runs very, very deep throughout the Scriptures. And it starts very early. It's page 6 of my Bible, but it's in, in uh, Genesis chapter 5, or Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis, why do I keep saying Genesis? I don't know why that's not, Genesis 4 uh, is, we're going to see this. And last week, if you were here, Stephen or referenced this story about sin being a force and, and Cain and Abel. And here's what happened if you didn't know how the story end. Cain allowed the force that was wanting to devour him to do that. And he attacks his brother Abel and he kills him and he murders him and it is bad. And this is what we find, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. God comes and he speaks to, to Cain. He says, what have you done? 
Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So there's, we pick it up, page six of the Bible. Your blood, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So is Abel's blood, is it literally speaking? Probably not, but a chapter prior, like an, a snake was speaking. So we probably can't count it out. But for the most part, for the most part, like we, the, the blood isn't actually speaking, but it can be heard. And here's the thing, in the biblical narrative, blood speaks loudly. In the biblical narrative, as we walk through the pages of Scripture, blood speaks loudly, none louder than Jesus. And that's what we're going to be studying on. That's what we're going to be focusing in on. And we referenced this again last week. And as we walk through this series, there's going to be some overlap. Just know that that's going to be the case because metaphors are explaining the same type of thing. We're trying to get to the same idea. But we talked last week about about Passover in Exodus chapter 20 or Exodus 12. And this is the first place that we see in Scripture where, where blood is actually a substitution for death. It's, it's being used to, to pass over him. And so what we're, what we're being able to see in this metaphor, as we understand Passover and we understand saying Jesus, is what we're seeing in this metaphor is that Jesus' blood, it's, it's the, the blood that has been spilled, that is put on our doorpost so that the death angel passes over. So that's the metaphor. That's what we're going to be working through. That's what we're going to be talking through today. And so as we think about this, as we start to consider why Jesus's blood had to be shed, what caused this to happen? What was the problem? Last week, we spent some time writing some problems up on the, on the board. The problem is, is sin. Why did Jesus's blood have to be shed? Because of our sin. And this week, we're going to focus in on sin being law-breaking. So it's this decision that we've made, this rebellious decision to separate ourselves from God, as we see in the very first part of the Bible. We see sin as a choice of of choosing a way that is not the way of God. It's rebellion. It's thinking God does not have your best interest in mind. It's believing the lie that God doesn't want what's best for you. And we we go and we do our other, we go and do another way. And so here's, here's the picture that we see in scriptures, is that sin builds a barrier. And sin builds a barrier between us and God. But it's not just between us and God. That's the one I think oftentimes we're really familiar with. It's like, okay, sin has kept me away from God. But here's what sin begins to do is sin builds a barrier between us and other people. I mean, think about some of your sins in your life. Maybe there's some trust that has broke down, some some faith that has broke down, and there's some barriers that have been built between you and other people. Sin also builds a barrier between us and ourselves because we can't be the people that we were created to be because of, because of our sin. We are less human than we were meant to be. And then also it builds a barrier between us and the world. And we can see the very first sin in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. We see all four of these aspects begin to happen when sin enters the world. The first thing we see is with Adam and Eve, it builds a barrier between, between them and God. Because what does Adam and Eve do? What do they do when God shows up after they've sinned? You guys remember? They hide. Their presence that they had longed for, this, this decision, they wanted to be with God. They wanted to be in his presence. And now because of their sin, they are hiding themselves away from him. And it's built this barrier of, the, of this presence of God. This barrier has been built between them and God. But not only has a barrier been built between them and God, but between each other. They cover up their nakedness. They hide themselves from each other. There's this barrier that has been built. 
between others and between God. But we also see there's a barrier that's built between them and themselves. Did you guys catch this? They feel shame. Why do they, have, why do they put clothes on? Because they feel shame. And we were never meant to feel that way. That was, that's less than human. That is not the way we were meant to be. And so this barrier, this sin, has made us less human. You can also look just the next chapter about the way that it builds a barrier between other people. Like with Cain and Abel, we see that story play out. Quite a, quite a thing there. But we also see that there's a barrier built between them and the world. Remember, part of the consequences of sin was that the ground would be cursed because of you. Your life, you will, scra- you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will have thorns and thistles. And these barriers have been broken or have been built. Because of our sin, all these barriers have been erected. All these barriers have been built that separate us from being truly human, that separate us from truly being in the presence of God, that separate us from ourselves, that separate us from our world. And so the problem is that all these barriers have now been built. And in order for them to to be torn down, in order for them to be destroyed, something dramatic needs to happen. Something radical needs to happen, and it does, through the person of Jesus, through the God incarnate coming and shedding his own blood. So as we begin to dive into this this idea of blood sacrifice, what it begins to tell us is, is there is no sorrow that God isn't willing to take. There is no grief that he isn't willing to bear. There is no price that he is unwilling to pay. There is no pain that he is unwilling to experience so that he can win us back. So that he can rescue us. So he can tear down the walls that sin has built. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts about Jesus. And it says this, it says God was willing to move heaven and earth to rescue his people. That's what this, this is what this talks about. This is what this tells us. And so this is what blood sacrifice is beginning to show us. And so our sin, it separated us from God. We have this barrier and there needs to be something that is dealt with in this pain and this suffering that we all experience. Dorothy Sayers, she, she writes this. I think it's a really powerful quote about Jesus and about what God has done. She says this. It says, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game, whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. We, he, can ex, he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. So Jesus has played, God has played fair. God has played by the same rules. And this is what blood sacrifice shows, shows us is that there was not a step that God was not willing to take. And so the solution, the solution to our sin problem, the solution to to this this issue that we have, this barrier that has been built, is is Jesus taking, or God took his own medicine. He enters into the world and he deals with suffering. The solution is the shedding of blood. So let's look at the book of Hebrews together. So Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Give us a second to to turn there. Hebrews 9, verse 22, says this. He says, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So our sin problem, we have an issue here. Something has gone wrong. There is a problem that has happened. And the only way for us to find forgiveness is the shedding of blood. And so he begins to talk about, he talks about the law of Moses. So the first thing we see, and that's what we're going to dive into first. So let's go ahead and get to everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. So we're going to walk through the Levitical system of sacrifice. I know you are all hoping we dive into Leviticus today, right? I know we're excited for this. Um, here's the thing. If, you, if you've attempted to read through the Bible in a year, this is probably the book that you're like, okay, I think I'm done now. Or maybe this is the book you just kind of like, we'll just skip that and we'll tick it off as if I read and, and we'll miss that because I've talked to tons of people like, this is the book. This is the moment that stopped because the reality is it's a weird book. Like, it's okay to say that. Like, it's strange. It's a little bit weird. But in Leviticus chapter 4, God is laying out for the people what needs to happen in order for, for sin to be made right. So when sin enters the world, we, talk, we see the sacrificial system being played out in, in Leviticus chapter 4. And here's what it says. We're going to read. There's four different moments, four different people groups that are addressed here. First is the high priest. In verses 4 through 6, here's what we find. So the high priest sins, He must bring a bull to the Lord to, to the entrance of the tabernacle, lay his hand on the bull's head, and slaughter it before the Lord. The high priest will then take some of the bull's blood into the tabernacle, dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. All right, it's a little weird. Like, we'll acknowledge that. Let's continue going on. So let's read about the community sin. So verses... 16 or 13 through 16 talks about the community. Let's pick up in verse 14. It says, When they become aware of their sin, the people must bring a young bull as, a sacri- as an offering for their sin and present it before the tabernacle. The elders of the community must lay their hands on the bull's head and slaughter it before the Lord. The high priest will take some of the bull's blood into the tabernacle, dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the inner curtain. He will then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, and it's a fragrant incense that stands in the Lord's presence inside the tabernacle. He will pour the rest of the blood, he will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar for burnt offerings and the entrance of the tabernacle. All right, so that's what about a leader? Let's keep going. Verses 22 through 25. This is when the leaders are addressed. So 23 says this. When he becomes aware of his sin, he must bring an offering of a male goat with no defects. He must lay his head, hand on the head of the goat and slaughter it in the place of burnt offerings are slaughtered before the Lord. It is an offering for his sin. Then the priest will dip his finger in the blood of the sin offering and bring it to the horns of the altar of the burnt offerings. He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And the final one is just the common people. Verse 28 through 30. When they become aware of their sin, they must bring an offering for their sin, a male goat with no def- or female goat with no defects. They must lay their hand on the head and of the sin offering and slaughter it in the place where the burnt offerings are slaughtered. Then the priest will dip his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar of a burnt offering. He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. All right, you guys kind of get the theme here, right? There is blood that is shed. Fingers that are dipped in the blood and being brought into the presence of God, right? And so as we begin to see this, like, it's a bit strange, but here's what we see. 
and all of them except for the, for the priest, what ends up happening is, it says through the process, the priest, will, the priest will purify the people, making them right with the Lord, and they will be forgiven. Through the process, the priest will purify the leader from his sins, making them right with the Lord, and he will be forgiven. Through this process, the priest will purify the people, making them right in the Lord, and they will be forgiven. And so what we begin to see here is it's through the blood. It's through blood that sins are forgiven. And so God knows from the start of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that the presence, that his presence and the way that he has been with his people, has, there's a barrier that has been built. And there needs to be something to happen in order for, the God, for people to be in God's presence again. And what we begin to see is we begin to look at the book, book of Leviticus. Like, I used to think the book of Leviticus is super weird. I still think it's a weird book, but it is an absolutely, it's an absolutely beautiful book. As we begin to understand it a bit more, as we start to look at this, we start to look at the, the tabernacle as, as a new Eden, where the presence of God dwelled, where people were allowed to be in the presence of God like they were meant to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so as we walk through this, what we're going to see here is the book of Leviticus, as weird as it might be, is a love story of how a holy God makes a way for our unholy people to once again be in his presence. And I don't know if we've thought about the book that way. Because sometimes we get a little off guard with like what we have to do when there's mold in the house. Or what we have to do when we touch a dead body. Or what we have to do when there's some, some feminine issues that go on in people's lives. Like we, we tend to get a little lost there where we miss the point of the book. Where the point of the book is God wants to be near his people. And he is doing whatever it takes. He is setting up all these crazy rules, all these crazy laws, a way that we can cleanse ourselves so that we can once again be in the presence of God. Like it's a love story that God wants to be with you. He longs to be with you and he knows. He knows that there's, there's been a barrier that has been built. And so he, he gives us these rules. Like, hey, when there's sin, when the barrier of sin is built, here's how you deal with it so you can be in my presence. But as we continue to walk through the book of Leviticus, like it talks about touching a dead body. Is touching a dead body sinful? No, but it makes us unclean. Why? Because death was never meant to be the part of God's good world. And so we begin to we cleanse ourselves so that we can be in the presence, be back to this Garden of Eden. Is having mold in your house sinful? I hope not because we live in Ireland. Um, <laughs> is it sinful? No but it was never meant to be the way that the world was supposed to be. And so God cleanses the, he allows us to cleanse ourselves so that we can once again enter into this new Eden. We can enter into relationship with him. The problem was, is these sacrifice was, was once every time we would be in, we'd begin to sin. And so these sacrifices, what they would do in the Levitical system is they would, they would roll back sin until we would sin again. So just a question for anyone. Uh, anyone have a sinning problem? I'm not just teaching you guys how to raise your hand here. Like, I'm not showing you what it means to raise your hand. I have a sin problem. Yeah, I think we all should be able to raise our hand. How many of you would be a lot like me and you would run out of sheep or goats or bulls really quickly? I don't even have a goat or a sheep or a bull. I would be in a bad spot. 
Because the reality is, like each time the people would sin, and this was talking about unknowingly sin, and then you realize that you've sinned, you've sinned unintentionally, and then you go and you make this sacrifice, we would run out of animals really, really quickly. The, the, satis- the sacrificial system wasn't a once-in-for-all sacrifice. It was the rolling back of sin. So, we continue in Hebrews chapter 10 this time. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10 verse 4. It was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is not possible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. The rolling back of our sin, the sacrificial system that we see beautifully laid out for us in the book of Leviticus, it was never enough to deal with our sin problem in its totality. It was never enough to completely wipe this away. There needed to be a sacrifice again and again and again. Enter Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 10. It says, For God was willing for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And I love this. I love the the wordplay and the pictures that begin to see here. Catch that phrase, once for all time. Like this this was it. And it's not only once for all time, it was good for all time. And so this sacrifice of Jesus, is, it's the one. It's the sacrifice that was good for then, and now it's good for all time. And it begins to say this. I love this, this statement. It says, then he sat down. Because there's this contrast that is going on between the Levitical priest and Jesus, our high priest. Because what the priest would do is constantly again and again and again and again offer sacrifices. The the job of offering sacrifices never stopped. Because we've already acknowledged we have a sin problem. And so the Levitical priest, like one guy, they they would punch out, they'd clock out, the next priest would show up and we'd continue the process. The priest's job was never done. It was just a continual sacrifice. They never sat down and like, okay, we're finished with this sacrificial thing. But Jesus sits down saying, it's finished, it's done. I don't know if you guys remember that from the cross. Jesus says, it is finished. Like this, this price has been paid, the sacrifice has been made. And not only does he sit down, he sits down in the place of honor, he sits down by God's right hand. He, sit, he returns back to the place that he was, back beside the Father. And so the solution to our sin problem is Jesus is this new sacrifice the once and for all, the good for all time, the forevermore sacrifice. The thing is, Jesus was not a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. In the Old Testament law, the blood of, of animals was used to help people be, back, be allowed back in the presence of God. The story of the gospel is that Jesus came so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could forever, once and for all, be back in his presence. So I want us to flip to the passage that we read together, Colossians 1. Blake, I appreciated your... Amazing, that's that's amazing, because it is. Like When we read this passage, it's just like, wow, right? So Colossians 1, let's look at verses 19 through 20. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. 
says this. It says, For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through Him, God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Friends, catch that first phrase. God was pleased. Let that sink into your soul for just a second. God was not reluctant to give his life for you. God was not like looking, well, I'm going to die for this guy. I might as well die for you too. Like that's not the story. It's not a reluctant God. It's not a reluctant sacrifice. It's that God is pleased that he loved you so much that knowing everything that was going to go on, he died anyway. And not only is he not reluctant, he takes the initiative. He's the one who takes the steps. He's the one who reconciles us to himself. We couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't do enough. Like he is not reluctant. He has taken the initiative and he does so by the means of his own body, by Jesus's blood that is being shed for us. Like that is beautiful. That's the, that's the story. That's the blood sacrifice. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing. And I think it is beautiful. And I think we should all say amen when we, see, we read that. Like, let's, let's do that together. Amen? amen. It's awesome, right? And I use that in the most beautiful sense of the word. It is, it is all inspiring that Jesus would do this for us. When our daughter Ava, when she was first born, so four years ago, and most of you know this, like, she had to spend the first 48 hours of her life, give or take, uh, in the NICU. And so it was not the most like, romantic first couple of days that you expect with a newborn child. And so like when she was born a few minutes, a few hours, like an hour after she was born, she spiked this massive fever. And they were like, we got to take her to the NICU. And we're like, why? And anyway, and so she goes to the NICU. And like, here she is. And like Tiffany had had a cesarean. So like she can't quite get up there because she's paralyzed from the waist down. And this just like this, it's not the way things are supposed to go. And I just remember sitting up there with her. And every time the doctors would come around, like I am trying to convince them of, of this, that she's healthy. Like, uh, she's fine. Like, we, and and like, I'm trying to convince them, and every single time, you know what they would do? They'd grab that stupid chart, and they'd look at it. I'm like, well, sorry. Or because what would happen is she was, Ava was born on a Saturday, and for some reason they didn't have someone there to actually run the bloods until the Monday to see if she actually had an infection, which she didn't. Uh, anyway, another story. But like they had all these stuff like, and we were sitting there and it's like, the doctor was like, I don't know why she's here. She's a healthy baby. I was like, okay, can we go? No, still can't go. Cause she hasn't ticked all these boxes and they would go. And I was trying to convince them and they would look at the chart and be like, well, she hasn't, she hasn't eaten this much. She hasn't had this type of bowel movement. She hasn't done this yet. And all these boxes have to be ticked before she can leave the NICU. And I just remember trying to convince them otherwise. And every single time they'd look at the chart and they'd see the reality. And here's the thing. God has read all of our charts. He's looked at our reports. He knows our tendencies. He, he knows the truth about you, the truth that you most want to keep hidden from everyone else. He knows that. He sees it more clearly than anyone. But guess what? He loves you more than anyone. He went to reconcile you to himself. He takes the initiative. He isn't reluctant. He, even though he knows my tendency towards pride, Maybe he, know, he knows all of your tendencies as well. But yet, he steps out for us. Yet, he takes the initiative so that we can be reconciled, so that we can be made right with him through the shedding of his blood. And I want to make sure that we don't miss the fact that 
that blood isn't the metaphor. All right, so as we look at this word in scripture, blood is not metaphorical, it's literal. So the 83 times that we read the word blood in the book of Leviticus, I think we read like 80 of them in that one passage. Here's the definition for blood. The red liquid in creatures, which is essential to life. It's, it's, he's, it's real. It's not like the blood is metaphor. No, it's real blood. The, Hebrew, the Greek word that we see for blood, 21 times in the book of Hebrews, talking about how Jesus is a better sacrifice. This is the definition. The red life fluid in and of humans and animals. And I just love that, that terminology, the life fluid. Like, and so here's why, here's why I bring this up. It's because Jesus was a person. Jesus was a human being. This is not metaphorical that he bled. The fact that Jesus really, really lived. Jesus isn't just some force or some spirit. Jesus was a human being. Jesus lived as a person. And that's significant, and that's really important for us. And as we begin to, to walk through the scriptures, we'll see when Jesus is on the cross, I don't know if you remember one of the seven things he says. He says, I am thirsty. He's a human being. The picture that, that Nick painted here, there's, there's 12-year-old Jesus. Can't really tell he's 12, but he's, he's 12, sitting on the, on the steps of the temple. Because in, in Luke chapter 2, we find that Jesus gets left in the temple. Jesus was a 12-year-old. We see that throughout Scripture. In John 11, we see that Jesus wept. He cried. He was a human being. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus took a nap. I love that about Jesus. Like Jesus takes a nap on a boat in the middle of a storm. So Jesus is a human. And so why do we talk about this? Why does it matter? Because Jesus can identify with us. Because if Jesus can't identify with us, if Jesus, God isn't incarnate, if he doesn't come, there is no atonement. And here's the truth. Jesus is God enough to save us and man enough to understand us. There's not a single thing that we come to God with where Jesus can't say, yeah, me too. You dealt with being abandoned by friends? Jesus understands. You, you had a hard day at work? Jesus understands. You feel like no one really understands you? Jesus understands. And everything we come to him, we can say, I, I know, me too. You know what it's like to lose a child? God understands. He knows what it's like. And so Jesus, he comes and he identifies with us in our suffering, in our pain, and in our death. And so there's this, this guy called John Stott. He's a theologian, really smart guy, a lot smarter than me. Uh, he has this quote. He says this. He says, If the cross is not central to our religion, then our religion is not a religion of Jesus. So the cross is central. But if we remember what happened on the cross, what did Jesus do? He, he bled. He bled for us. So not only does the cross of Christ matter, but so does the life of Christ. It matters. Jesus' life is really important. And we're going to continue to, to set this up over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about this more and more. But I'm just kind of teeing it up for us so that we can continue to remember. The life of Jesus matters. Let us never forget that Jesus was actually a person. That there's 33 years between Jesus' birth and Jesus' death that are really significant, that matter for us. And then just in case you're wondering how much of the Gospels is, is dedicated to the life of Jesus, you're in luck. 
So those 33 years, here's what we find in, in the book of Matthew. Out of 28 chapters, 24 of those chapters are dedicated to the life and the ministry of Jesus. In the book of Luke, or Mark, 14 of the 16 chapters are dedicated to the life and the ministry of Jesus. In the book of Luke, 19 of 24 chapters are dedicated to the life and the ministry of Jesus. In the book of John, 18 of 21 chapters are dedicated to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And I know you guys are all adding this up in your head, but I'll help you out. 75 of the 89 chapters in the Gospels are about the life of Jesus. That matters. Don't just fast forward. Let's not just rush Jesus to the cross and forget about the way that he lives and forget about what he does on, on life. And in his incarnation, he identifies with us in every single dimension. He, he gets us in our suffering, in our pain. He, he's with us there. And he comes so that he can bring grace to human beings. And so that's the solution, is that Jesus' blood this real human being blood is shed for us. So what does it accomplish? What it accomplishes is, is peace. Shalom in every single direction. Let's look again at the passage in Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything through himself, to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. What our sin divides, Jesus' shalom reunites. What our sin divides, Jesus' sin brings back together. We see this, what, this, this barrier between us and God, the shalom, the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the blood that has shed, it makes peace with everything. You guys catch that? It makes peace with everything on heaven and on earth. Our, so it, it, it breaks down this barrier between us and God. It breaks down the barrier between us and other people. It breaks down the barrier between us and ourselves. It breaks down the barrier between us and our world. And I love this, and we see by the shedding of blood that Jesus brings this shalom, and this idea of peace is not just the absence of problems, but it's this completion, this, that everything is being made right, everything is being made new again, the return to what it's meant to be. And it's through this, this death, through this shalom, that we find forgiveness. In Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes this, he says... Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. Stephen hit on this last week, but I don't want us to miss this. Friends, you are not just forgiven. You've been set free. Catch this. He purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You are free. Jesus doesn't just forgive us. Jesus frees us. And maybe some of us sitting here in this room right now, maybe you've been here and you're in this moment is like, okay, God has forgiven me, but you're still carrying around this deep weight and this, this guilt that is just suffocating to you. Let me just remind you that Jesus' death has freed you from that. You can walk out of this place with your head held high. You can walk out of this place a little bit higher because the guilt that sin has put on you, Jesus has dealt with that and you can walk free again. Because of what Jesus has done, you are not just forgiven, you are freed. Let's stop living in captivity. Let's stop living in these things that Jesus has already dealt with and what he's died for, for us. We have been made right. We have been freed. 
And that's amazing. And it's beautiful. And I love the way that Scott McKnight, in his book, A Community Called Atonement, I love the way he puts this. Here's what he says. He says, The Creator became like the created to give new life to His creation. This is what Jesus has come to do. He comes not only to, to wipe our slates clean. He comes not only to just forgive, forgive us so that we can at least go to heaven, but we're going to feel bad about that, but He comes to give us new life. Jesus not only dies for us, but he dies with us. Jesus identifies with us all the way down to the grave. Jesus didn't come just to explain pain away. Jesus didn't have this TED Talk and just, hey, you've got an issue with pain, you've got a question, watch my TED Talk, I'll explain it away for you. No, Jesus didn't come to explain pain away. He came to experience it with us and for us. God took our pain and our suffering so seriously. He took it upon himself. That's how much Jesus cares about your pain. That's how much God cares about your suffering, is that he was willing to take it upon himself, showing that there is no, state, no step that he is, willing, he is not willing to take. There is no price that he is not willing to pay for you, for what he has done. And so what we begin to see as we look at the atonement, as we look at what Jesus has accomplished for us, we begin to see that this beautiful thing, there's, there's not only the slate has been wiped clean, because it has, but now restoration has begun to happen. And that we can begin to live again as the people that God created us to be. We can truly be human again. And so... What is it? How does this change the way we live? So here's the question I think most of us have. Okay, this is great. Jesus did these things. Awesome. But it changes some things in us. We read in Colossians 1 that God has reconciled us to himself. So what do we do in light of that? We become agents of reconciliation. We reconcile to other people. We begin to see this playing out in, in the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about if you have an offering and you realize that someone has something against you, leave it there, go and be made right, go and be reconciled with that person, then come give your offering. Notice Jesus doesn't say you have something against someone else. No, Jesus says if someone has something against you, you take the initiative. You go out and you be made reconciled. You be made right with that person. So we reconcile with each other. As agents of reconciliation, that's what we do. Next thing we do is we reconcile with the world around us. We, we seek the shalom of the world around us. And in Jeremiah 29, perhaps we know Jeremiah 29, 11, but in Jeremiah 29, 7, before we get there, God has given a word to the people of Israel through, through Jeremiah. They're in captivity in Babylon. And God says to Jeremiah, he tells them, tell the people, hey, build homes plant vineyards, seek the shalom of the place that you are now living. So this is what we do. As people, as agents of reconciliation, as people who have been reconciled to God, we seek the reconciliation of our world. We stand up for the vulnerable. We stand up for the rights of people. As a church, we, we walk for freedom with the A21 walk. We stand against human trafficking. We stand against these things. We look at what is wrong in our community and in our world and say, let's, let's, let's deal with that. Let's, let's be reconciled. Let's help that be made right again. So we reconcile. God has done the reconciliation with, with him. We reconcile with others. We reconcile with our world. The final thing we do 
as we reconcile with ourselves. Because sometimes, sometimes, man, we, we can be stuck here thinking, okay, God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. I've been there. I've been stuck in that before. But the reality is, we can. I love the story in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. And perhaps you know, like, Peter is, is famously known for denying Jesus three times. And now Jesus and, and Peter are sitting around a campfire. They're, getting, they're eating some fish. And there's probably something about that fire that reminds Peter of the last time that he was around a fire where he denied Jesus. And three times Jesus talks to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Once for every time that Jesus, Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asked him, do you love me? And in doing so, Jesus gives him the same response. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. What is, Peter, what is Jesus doing for Peter? He said, yeah, Peter, you screwed up. You messed up. But you're still on the team. You still have work to do. I can still use you. And so in this moment, Jesus seeks out Peter. And I love this. Is he shows Peter that he is forgiven, but he also helps Peter to forgive himself. And so for some of us here today... Maybe that's what we need. We are reminded, we know that Jesus has forgiven us, but maybe we're just stuck in this unforgiveness of ourselves as you are forgiven. It's okay to live as a forgiven people. It's okay to live in freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. The fact is, Jesus' pain, Jesus paid much too high of a price for us to remain in unforgiveness. He paid too high of a price for us to stay there. So today, maybe for you, maybe you've never been reconciled to God. Maybe you've never made that decision. And I pray that that's the day. That's the day you do that. Maybe today, you know there's someone who has something against you. You know there's some reconciliation that needs to happen. So today is the day that you're going to make that phone call. You're going to send that text message. You're going to meet up with that friend so that things can be made right again. Maybe you need to be reconciled with the world. See what the world needs and, and begin to reconcile, begin working. You know, start dealing with the homeless issue. Start dealing with the human trafficking issue. Start dealing with the fact that you have a neighbor in your, in your neighborhood who has lost a loved one and they could use a little bit of help. Start dealing with those things. And finally, have some reconciliation with ourselves. Be reconciled. Be, be back to being the human, the way that we were created to be. Because we can walk out of this door knowing if we are in Christ, that we have been forgiven. The price that Jesus paid, the real blood that Jesus said was much too high for us to go on not forgiving ourselves for what Jesus has dealt with. And I want us to continue looking again just at the end of Colossians 1. Colossians 1, it says this. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Friends, you ever wondered what God feels about you? You ever wonder what God thinks about you? That through Jesus, you know what he thinks about you? You are holy. You are blameless without a single fault. That's who you are. And it's all because of Jesus. 
It's because of what Jesus has done for us that that is where, where we are. So let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the way that you have given your life, that your blood was shed for us. God, thank you that now we can stand again in the presence of God, being reconciled, being reunited, being back to the people we were created to be. And Lord, I just pray that in light of your forgiveness, in light of your grace, in light of what you have, the, what you have poured out for us on the cross, God, that we will live as a forgiven and a freed people because that is who we are through your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.